there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. But I found myself in, uh, in a 400 tonne, well, 200 tonne truck with a 200 tonne payload, 12 hour shifts on my own. The radio didn't work mostly, the two way wasn't great, we weren't allowed to have phones or anything. So I, um, I realised for someone who'd told himself all his life he was going to be a novelist, that this was the point. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival. Supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This panel is the highlights and the low lives of crime. With Meg Keneally, Dorothy Johnston, Richard Anderson and hosted by Kate McClymont. to have some um, enthusiastic uh, people in our audience today, but you are going to be so excited hearing from our four panellists, and I'll introduce them. Over to my left, we have Richard Anderson, Dorothy Hello. Johnston, Hello. Guy Guiana, and we have Meg Keneally. And you'll all be, um, no doubt, very interested hearing about how our actual authors um, approach writing crime, how much is fact, how much is fiction, and then no doubt we'll hear from uh, Chief Inspector Guiana how irritating it is <laughs> when he actually has to deal with the actual fact of crime and then it gets reduced to, you know, um, something that's solved in about five minutes in either on TV or <laughs> in literature. But we're going to start with our uh, local author, Richard Anderson, who's known for, I love this description, rule noir. (laughs) So, Richard, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you think rule noir is and why you've written uh, Retribution? (laughs) Thank you, Kate. Thanks, everyone, for being here. I think it's terrific. I don't know where rule noir comes from because publishers are often looking for descriptions. You just have to go with it. You know, to me, rural noir is kind of gumshoe west of the ranges. But um, some of the booksellers call it big hat fiction, big hat crime. Very popular at the moment for people to die in small villages, I think you've noticed, in Australian fiction. And if you're travelling to Scone, you're probably looking around the corners going, is there a dead body here? Is there a dead body here? Because... The, f- the fashion seems to be to kill people in small towns at the moment. <laughs> but I, um, my, uh, there is quite a bit of crime in my story, but it's not a detective story as such. I didn't start out trying to write a crime novel, but I found using a local crime event allowed me to talk about stories that interested me, and I'm a farmer, stories that interested me that didn't include the farmer fighting the drought or the farmer dealing with the, the deluge, if you like. So... Crime has allowed me to, to explore stories of rural Australia, I suppose, which includes rural noir by, um, yeah, by doing that. But I think yours um, is about, you know, it starts off about um, stock theft. And I know you haven't personally stolen animals, I would hope. <laughs> but um, it's interesting that, that you have, you know, chosen things that I think many people, not just here in this room, but in Australia, can really 
um, you know, feel some kindred with. And I know that um, it's been described of your books that there's also a sense of not just the sort of rural isolation, but the, the mental isolation that comes from a rural setting. Do you find that um, that holds true for yours? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's certainly true. And I think um, that's one of the things, there are lots of interesting rural characters, probably a bit uh, the way Meg was talking about historical factors. There's a lot of interesting rural characters who live in their own particular way that we don't talk about. We, have, we tend to have archetypes that are the grizzled farmer or the, <coughs> the driver's wife, for instance, but there are lots of very fascinating Australians out there and they live isolated lives, which makes them, allows them to be more fascinating because they allow themselves to be more eccentric and perhaps a little odd and isolation of thought allows them to believe that they're right in what they're doing. So I think that's tremendous ground to have characters that are interesting and diverse and a bit odd. Oh, and then we go from in rural noir to historical noir. So many of you will know <coughs> that um, Meg Keneally has been writing some of her novels with her father, uh, Tom. And how did you first settle upon, um, you know, basically detective series set in a penal colony with a, a gentleman convict? Well, um, the, uh, the the original concept was Dad's idea. Uh, at one point in his life was um, in Port Macquarie and is responsible for writing one of Australia's uh, earliest novels called Ralph Rashley. Uh, so he was researching James Tucker and reading The Girl with Tattoo. So he was oh. thinking, <laughs> <laughs> as you do, so he was thinking, convict, detective. So put them both together. So he... Uh, came to me with the idea and said, I don't, I really want to write these, but I actually don't have time. Can you write them and we'll sort of develop them together? So that's how it started. But I think that you um, said at one stage that um, editing something that your father mm. had written was like finger painting over a it Da Vinci. Was. <laughs> it was, it was. He, he wrote the first 30,000 words or so. And we initially thought I'd write a chapter, he'd write a chapter and so forth. Our voices are so different. It was just a bit of a, you know, a, a, a mishmash. So we decided that ultimately that I'd write them and we'd edit them together and that, you know, I'm in constant consultation with him. If you're going to write historical fiction, I highly recommend being born to somebody who's a walking filing cabinet of Australian history. Uh, it, it makes things so much easier when you can just ring up and say, what kind of shoes would you know that sort of thing uh so um yeah so and I did find that in some of the in the in the first book there there are some passages which dad wrote and I thought who am I to change this you know but, but are there passages which you've had to say dad it doesn't work it's crap um, <laughs> David yeah. Ma stop shouting out <laughs> your hooting laugh <laughs> I I I I, I don't really feel I have a right to <laughs> to say that. I think you know we we rarely fight. We're both far too passive aggressive for for that. We rarely you're both have liberals, aren't you? Yes, we are. Yeah, yes. yeah. So so instead of fighting, we say, "I hope you don't mind when I say that. I hope this doesn't offend you." If I think that you say that, <laughs> and then we just sort of run around and run and run around in circles until we disappear up our own armpits. But. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I, uh, we have had some minor genial arm wrestles about various small points. 
Um, of course, I'm always going to give him the casting vote. He's written 50-plus books. When you ask him how many books he's written, he doesn't even know off the top of his head. So uh, uh, so for me, it's, it's been like a personal masterclass, so I'm getting far more out of the arrangements. Well, we'll come back to the historical mm. nature of it. Mm. But, um, Dorothy, you live in Canberra. I, for 30 oh, years for, I yes. lived in Canberra. You're not anymore? Not anymore. Right. Where, where are you now? I'm on the south coast of Victoria. I'm where my current series is set, a small town called Queenscliff. But and, I, and so have you, you're now writing about um, different, like, south coastal town, sea change kind of um, crimes? I am. But I have to say that the reason I started writing crime was to try and write about Canberra, to try and find a, a way of making sense <laughs> of Canberra. I was, um, <laughs> I, I was a, lit, a literary novelist with some sort of track record. I'd actually been twice shortlisted for the Miles Franklin when I published my first Canberra crime novel and I got a very rude review <laughs> by a reviewer who said that I, I came to the genre with a pedigree. And he meant literary pedigree and he meant that it didn't fit me at all well <laughs> for my new incarnation. Now, it just so happened that I, I knew this person by sight and I happened to bump into him at a literary event and I plucked up my courage and I went and introduced myself and I, I told him he'd made me feel rather like a, a poodle or a Pomeranian being told it couldn't join the mongrels club. <laughs> Whereas the truth is, and in my heart of hearts, I've always been a mongrel. <laughs> So that's how I got into it. But having got into it, of course, as most people who've tried know, it, it's totally addictive. And <laughs> All writing is addictive. Crime writing is super addictive. <laughs> and um, a, a lot of your, your first books, well, sorry, your early um, crime books were about a cyber sleuth. But you've changed from that. Did that become outdated or did you feel just like having a, a sea change? Well, well, this, this is an outdated uh, sort of idea, but when I was writing those Canberra books, Can Canberra was being touted as the new IT capital of Australia. Uh, it, and all those sorts of strange claims were an attempt, I think, attempt to get away from the idea that it's only a seat of government. And one of the things I was interested in those Canberra books was what it's like to be a human. What, in uh, Canberra? Yeah. <laughs> what it's like to be, I mean, it's also the prostitution capital. I mean, there's all these other... So, but then um, I actually moved home to help care for my mum before she died. And coming home, back to Victoria, back to this, the coast, was an amazing experience for me. I've been away for 30 years. Um, and so I decided I'd try and... I'd have a small-town constable as my, my protagonist, <laughs> and I'd, I'd, I'd see what I could do with that. And this rural crime, we know about rural crime. Um, the, but the thing about Queenscliff, one thing about Queenscliff, it's right next door to a secret spy base on Swan Island. So even so though it's a small town, it's got all these other stuff going on around it. So it's quite interesting as a setting. Okay, and... Um, Chief Inspector Guy Guiana. Now, um, you, I think, started policing, what, back in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. So you would have seen a lot. Now, 
is there any difference between, I, I know that you were at King's Cross and Redfern, but for the last 12 years you've been in Scone. Is there any basic difference in the kind of criminals you come across? <laughs> Are there a nicer I'm, class I'm, of criminal? What I'm saying is, is, <laughs> is there a nicer class of criminal in this area? <laughs> there's, certainly, uh, there's certainly a different class of criminal because down in the likes of King's Cross and Redfern, you can get rid of them, whereas up here they tend to stick around. <laughs> Um, no, hold on, it's, it's not like Midsummer Murders where, <laughs> where there's someone being killed rather a lot in a small town. It, it's not quite like it, but I'm pretty sure there's a fair bit of um, contemplation <laughs> going, going on. But, uh, no, a lot, of, uh, a lot of our, um, it's, it's true, a lot of our, uh, our cooks um, are our, our neighbours and oh. we have to deal with them again and again and again and they don't go far. Oh, do, do you ever sort of like... On you, that kind of thing. We, we do that a lot, but they know. <laughs> they know already. I was interested at um, dinner last night. Um, one of the fabulous organisers was mentioning that there are something like 120 vets in the area and seven doctors. So I was just wondering, <laughs> you know, is there a lot of sort of animal thoroughbred horsey crime here, you know, stock theft, that kind of thing, the kind of thing that Richard knows about? Well, well it's interesting because, yes, there is, and um, a, lot of it, a lot of it goes un, unreported. Um, and uh, it's interesting to hear what Richard says about isolation. It, it, it impacts the police investigation as, as much as it impacts the, the victims because um, we're three, four hours away from our nearest crime scene unit um, depending on where the, in the Upper Hunter Shire or Musselbrook the, the offences occur and um, we can be waiting a very long time to get our resources in, in place to start an investigation, whereas if it was closer to the city, that sort of thing would be happening within the hour. So um, I believe that a lot of our rural crime goes unreported because people believe we can't do anything about it, but it makes it difficult to start an investigation if it hasn't been reported. We'll come back to some of the serious crimes that you've looked at in the past, but just before we move on, is it harder in a small community when you know people, when they're, you know, they're your neighbours, your friends, having to deal with criminal behaviour on behalf of them or their family? Um, makes it harder when they're victims, especially of serious crime or, or um, you know, accidents and that sort of thing, but uh, it's uh, not too difficult when they're the crook. Oh, OK. <laughs> okay. And, um, and uh, Richard, I think that um, you started composing Retribution while you were spending rather a lot of time in a 400-tonne dump truck. Can you please <laughs> explain why this came about? Uh, yeah, okay. I, uh, working on the land, we had an opportunity came up for me to work in a coal mine. And the idea was it was a casual spot one day a week and uh, just driving a truck, 12-hour uh, shifts. And so I applied for the job and I got the job and I got there and the coal mine said, well, actually, it's a full-time job. You're a casual, which is casualisation of the workforce. It's all true. So I said to my wife, look, we can't do this. I can't run the farm and work time but we thought you know we were still educating kids we thought well why not take it on so I then 
tried to work the farm uh, during the day when I was on night shift and did what I can. But I found myself in uh, in a 400 ton, well, 200 ton truck with a 200 ton payload, 12 hour shifts on my own. The radio didn't work mostly. The two way wasn't great. We weren't allowed to have phones or anything. So I um I realised for someone who'd told himself all his life he was going to be a novelist that this was the point. This is the time you'd know, be stuck in that that cabin. So I wrote uh, my first novel, a thing called The Good Teacher, which was a fairly light community story, and then I wrote a good part of Retribution just in my head while I was driving and I scribbled down while they loaded me. So um, I hope you weren't driving, otherwise Guy would be on to you. Well, <laughs> it, it's a it's private, private property. A private site, <laughs> yeah. <it's not. laughs> so, you know, all, all, literally was a circumstance of me being locked in a small cabin, making the most of it. And now how are you going about your craft of writing? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a morning writer. I write early in the morning. But I, the thing I know, the small amount of knowledge I've learned about myself is that when I get an opportunity, I have to write because if you wait for the clear day or the, the day when no one's knocking on your door or, you know, there are no jobs to do, it's never going to happen. You never get there. So, so I when you write early and I how, how bright is, I how, how bright and early is that? Um, it, it might be five, but it might be oh. six. Right. Yeah. So and that's a good clear space. No one's ringing. There's no one about. And has anyone in the community come to you and said, I know who that is in your book? <laughs> 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 well, this is, a, this is a perpetual problem in a small community. I love it when you see authors on TV and they're talking about the wide writing world and how their book's accepted in the community and... When I write a book, the first people to read it are my friends and my community, and they are all, always looking to say, look, I know that guy, I know that guy. In fact, one of my friends said the other day, he struggles to enjoy the book because he spends so much time trying to work out (laughs) who it was. But that first book I wrote um, when I was driving the truck, I put it up, I self-published, I put it up on Amazon, and uh, no one in the mind read a book, read books. There was me and one other bloke on all the shifts who read books, and there was a considerable amount of illiteracy. So I wrote that story and some of the characters had a, a resemblance to some characters in the mine, but I knew I was safe because no one read books, so <laughs> it was all right. What I hadn't counted on the fact was that their wives read books. <laughs> so I came in for night shift one night and night shift starts about six and there might be some miners in the room. You're in your, you're in your high vis, everybody else is probably knocking off or with their friends and you coming in, dragging your feet, coming in for a, a long shift and you're thinking, oh, man. I walked into the, uh, the meeting area, which has a big board, which has all the de- all things you've got to do on it, and there was the front cover of my book that had been reproduced in massive size. And I heard that the, uh, the overseer had been reading passages out <laughs> to the characters who were quite similar. <laughs> In their trucks as they were driving around. So I thought, well, there goes the job. But, uh, well, it didn't, no, it didn't go. But that's, yeah, that's my lesson about, after that, my books after that, I'm very, very careful not to have characters. <laughs> there are anything like people I know. Now, now uh, Dorothy, since um, quite a, um, a few of your works involve prostitution, yeah. Do you have any of the madams coming to you saying, I'm in your book? <laughs> How can I talk about this to the policemen? <laughs> <laughs> My first novel, it's called Tunnel Vision, and it's set in a Melbourne massage parlour in the 1970s. 
when prostitution was illegal. And I actually worked in a Melbourne massage parlour in the 1970s, but I can't be arrested for a crime that's no, 40 years. statute, you're right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> statute of limitations. The Gone. statute of limitations has saved me. So, but it made a deep impression on me. And I've come back to that, the subject. I, I think it's out of my system now, or just about. But I've come back to it in short stories and novels subsequently. Can, can we uh, ask what was happening? What were you doing in the massage parlour? Well, the funny thing about massage parlours is you had to give massages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, do go on. My very first published short story, uh, which was published by, in, by Frank Morehouse in 1983, it's called The Man Who Liked to Come With the News, and it was the time of the constitutional <laughs> crisis. And we were supposed to keep the radio on as background, in the background. We weren't allowed to turn it off. But it was a constitutional crisis. And every three seconds there was a news report. <laughs> so I, I've never forgotten what it was like. With the, and he said, because I, I was obviously quite agitated, he said, I can tell you Labor, I'm Labor too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true could story. You, could you just tell us the name of that short story? <laughs> it's called The Man Who Liked to Come with the News. <laughs> How good is that? <laughs> well, we'll come, we'll come back to that, and I'm sure we're going to have some fabulous questions from our audience. <laughs> Guy, does it ever frustrate you, um, you know, as I was saying at the beginning, um, You've been at crime scenes, and in fact, I think um, one of Guy's most, probably most confronting was that as a young detective, he was based in King's Cross, and there was a very famous arson, and it was the um, the King's Cross backpacker fire, mm. in which um, 60 people were rescued, six young backpackers in their early 20s died. You know, how do you personally deal with that? And do you remember what that was like at the time? Yes, I wasn't a detective. I was a very young constable. But uh, my role in that particular investigation was actually going into the premises after the, after the fire and um, uh, assisting the crime scene officers with gathering the evidence. And um, it's, it, it's certainly a, a different... In, in novels and, and, and literature, um, you, can, you can explain the crime scene process better, but on TV where things got to be solved within a half hour time slot or, or, or the hour, it's not the way it happens in real life. It's, it's a, a meticulous process and uh, that particular um, event uh, was a matter of um, helping them map out where the fire had been set and where it had spread up through the stairwell and in, into the upper parts of the um, backpackers' premises. And then uh, we had to go through and collect the um, personal belongings of, of particularly the, the people who had died. And, and the one thing that really um, set in my mind was in the room where most of them had died, they, they died from smoke inhalation. They hadn't actually died from burns. And um, the entire room was black with smoke and water damage except for where the... Uh, victims had lain on the floor. So the closest thing I've ever seen to the chalk outline 
was uh, what I still refer to as the white ghosts oh, within. Right. Oh, so right. everything was black except for the where, where they bodies. where they lay, oh. and uh, so that image has always stayed with me you know, mm, from 1988. Yeah. And and then p- picking up their personal belongings and backpackers, they had their mm. photos. Yeah. Of, of happier times and, you know, where they'd been around Australia and that sort of thing. And locally um, at the moment you've got the, the very sad um, murder of Carly McBride. Mm-hmm. Did you have much to do with that investigation? Yeah, so, I mean, in my position as in a command position, I sort of direct and coordinate rather than get into the actual investigation side of things, but um, I, was, uh, I was actually working the night Carly went missing, so I, I was there at the beginning and uh, I happened to be working the day that her remains were found, so I was there for that part of it as well and, and um, uh, had, a, had a little bit to do with her, with her parents. Uh, we did a press conference in Newcastle. Um, so I have been quite involved in, in that investigation. And, and I think one thing that um, doesn't get reported a lot is the dealing with the families, like that must for be sure, sure. incredibly difficult. It's always always the hardest part of any investigation, so whether it be uh, a crime such as um, you know, a murder or, or um, serious accident, the, the most difficult part is, is helping, helping families find closure. Yes, I can imagine that would be. And um, Meg, your uh, Hugh Montserrat um, mm. has taken you to interesting places, but um, it was fascinating that one of your books is set in the Parramatta yeah. female factory and you had your family had a personal connection yes. to that. Can you tell us about it? Uh, yes, my great-great-grandmother, uh, Mary Shields, uh, was in the Parramatta female factory. Um, for those of you who don't know what that was, it was an institution founded... Um, uh, in the days of Macquarie for um, uh, for women, female convicts who weren't immediately able to be assigned or for some other reason had to be kept behind walls. And it was a marriage bureau where a fellow who was going bush, if he wanted a convict wife, would rock up and they'd, you know, have chats to various women for an hour and then off they'd go. It was like colonial speed dating. Um, uh, It was an employment bureau and it was a place of punishment and it was a place where some really horrendous punishment was meted out. Um, But, yeah, my great-great-grandmother But did you know that before? Is is that what caused you to set that or did you find that out while you were doing Um, your research? No, I knew it. So um, uh, thanks to the research of uh, uh, of an aunt some decades ago, I already knew it. And I think we probably would have done something on the female factory anyway because it is a fascinating institution Um, and I was particularly interested in the idea of it as a place uh, where the most powerless subset of a powerless group being convicts was was constrained so that they could be even even more demonised and abused, uh, much more convenient when they're all in one place to do that, you know. Uh, but uh, so I think I would have gone there anyway, but it was certainly more on my radar screen than it probably would have been otherwise. So do any of your, um, your works like um, Hannah Kent's, um, you know, burial rites? Yes, fantastic. Um, do any of yours based on an actual crime that, that you then embroider a tale around or is it the historical um, period and then you mm. make the crime up? Uh, 
none of them are based on actual crimes, but a lot of them contain events which um, uh, which are based on events which actually happen. Because the thing about Australian history is that there's so much interesting stuff that went on, you actually don't need to look far for for real-life events, which you can then shamelessly uh, embroider and pretend you made them up, you know. And so where do you do your research? Uh, a lot of it is... Um, You'll read about, through general reading, you'll read about something which really interests you and then you just go down various rabbit holes finding what you can find. I spend a lot of time in the State Library of New South Wales. Um, do they, do they recognise you when you come in? I, do they I, say, what book are you up to? <laughs> no, because um, I, I, I tend to go to various sections, but I do feel I should have a uh, frequent requester of rare documents card. Um, but uh, uh, so... Some particular event will be like the bit of sand in the oyster that you build everything else around. Um, in the book that's coming out next year, it's about uh, fake news and government corruption in colonial Sydney oh. and the event that, uh, and I hate to tell you, a journalist gets shot. Oh! <laughs> For writing a story which they are, that they are boasting everywhere that this story is going to topple the Darling administration. Um but did you, did you use, like, you know, the percolation of current events mm. to, right, you did, to go yeah. back and say what would be the corollary back yeah. in the penal days? Yeah, it, it interested me because it's not written as a manifesto. I, 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 we wrote it because we think it's a good yarn. But at the same time, I think particularly in the current climate, it bears repeating how a, a free and fearless press is, is one of the most valuable products of democracy and also how that how easily that freedom can be taken away, as Governor Darling tried to do. Governor Darling tried to licence newspapers so that they would have to seek his permission annually to, in order to be able to publish. And this is all because he was being excoriated every day in the press for uh, treatment of convicts, for nepotism, for cronyism, for the treatment Sounding of... Sounding <laughs> So he tried to licence newspapers and he tried to impose a stamp duty which would have increased the price to today's equivalent of about $50. Oh, right. Th thankfully, thank you, Justice Forbes, Justice, uh, 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 Chief Justice Forbes, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, over chucked that out. He said, it's, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, Ralph, it's not legal, you can't do it. So. But um, you've previously um, been a general crime reporter as well as having your PR agency. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever feel like doing something set in contemporary, <laughs> um, you know, contemporary crimes? Or yeah, yeah the... I, I, you know, it's, it's, it is fascinating stuff. It's just that there are so many people out there who are doing it so well. I don't think I could hold a candle to most of the contemporary crime writers out there. And... Um, so I w it's something that I would love to do. I actually have a novel that I wrote that I've I've put in a drawer, which maybe one day I'll get out and, and polish, which is a contemporary crime novel. Uh, I think it deserves to be in the drawer. It needs to contemplate its misdeeds for a little bit longer before <laughs> I before I get it out and 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 have another polish of it. Um, a book I've got coming out in 2020 is set in both colonial Australia and modern Australia. Um, 
and has a sort of crime aspect to it. But I do. And is is this one that you've done by yourself? Yeah, so I've got two solo efforts coming out. I've started writing without adult supervision. (laughs) (laughs) Is is Tom cross about that or is he happy for it? Oh, no, he's delighted. He's delighted. He's uh, and very supportive. I must say. So, in when you do work with somebody else, mm. um, do you work separately and then come together? Like, is there a set time, like once a week or every day, or how do you discuss uh, your work? Well, we we start by we're both keen bushwalkers, so we start by rambling around North Head, sort of nutting out the plot. Uh, is there someone got a, a notebook as you're rambling? Um, uh, I, I or driving a, a driving a truck. I, t- I tend to have a notebook or a, you know, I'll record on my phone or, 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 or whatever, but I must try a truck. <laughs> um, and then I go away and write the first draft and the second draft because no one ever sees my first drafts because they're utter dog's breakfast. Not even Dad has ever seen one. The first draft is where you can get things wrong with joyful abandon. Um, so then I do the second draft. Uh, he reads it, we go through it um, together and, you know, massage it and edit it and make sure that it's as tight as it can be. I am in daily contact with him, um, not only to ask historical questions but to say, you know, this character is heading in this direction, are you comfortable with that or are you happy with the way I'm, you know, handling this particular aspect of the story? And then we do what's known as dueling computers where we sit down and work on it together on our two computers uh, and then we edit it together as well when the copy edits come back from the publishers. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Look, I think on that note I'm sure that you all have questions you would like to ask our fabulous authors and our wonderful um, police officer. So um, who'd like to start? Ah, here we are in the front. If I could, it must be terribly frustrating um, with the grey area between corporate law and criminal law. And, and, and I'd be interested to hear how you establish that line, if you do, especially in the light of the current um, Royal Commission into Banking. There seems to me to be a lot of white-collar crooks involved from top to bottom. And uh, <laughs> I'd be interested to hear how, how, number one, how you handle it, number two, how frustrating it must be to to establish without doubt crime and then be told by a, a judge on high that, um, you know, it, it's absolute rubbish. It must be annoying. Well, I suppose uh, we don't really deal with corporate law. That's a bit outside of our jurisdiction. But I, I guess the, the, um, the difference for us is whether or not it's a civil, civil matter or criminal matter. So civil matters are... are, are um, usually based on the balance of probabilities and that's where you get your civil torts and, and that sort of stuff. Um, but for us, we deal with criminal law, which is uh, beyond reasonable doubt and um, that's, uh, quite often, um, that's quite often frustrating because we can, uh, we can know who's, crea- who's committed a crime um, and victims can know who's committed a crime, but then you've got to actually prove that in, in, in a court of law and the, and the words beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, are the um, are the key words there, so it's not uh, it's not like it is in the in the TV shows in particular where they uh, they get some little pieces of information and suddenly break this poor um, crook down at the end so that they spill their spill the whole story. That very rarely happens. Um, you've got to 
get it into into the court and um, convince a magistrate or a jury and a, a judge <laughs> that it, that it did happen and that there is no possible other scenarios. So the corporate stuff, yeah, it's a little bit beyond our scope. So um, I'm probably just as frustrated as everybody else with their bank. But uh, Guy, do you have any cases that still rankle with you that you haven't been able to get the perpetrator um, charged? Any come to mind? Um, no, we've been pretty good at locking them up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Off the top of my head, no, no. Um, oh, I, I think he's got a good a, success rate here. <laughs> there's a lot of cold cases out there, but I personally, um, no, we've been pretty good. Okay. Um, some, I think there was another question here. Yes, thank you. Mine's on a more personal question because I come from Newcastle and I'm a member of Newcastle U3A and our writing group and one of them is a retired superintendent. So my, my question is, knowing him and, and from the early days, um, you didn't have much help, like coming across some terrible crimes and, and something. How, is there any way now that you and your force deal with like, terrible things like PTSD? And is what, what help is available to you these days? Yeah, it's um, certainly changed from... Um, well, even in the last ten years, it's it's changed. There's there's a lot of focus on on um, assisting our officers to to access services and that. And I think probably some of the older blokes, um, some of my uh, colleagues might argue me, we might be a little bit crazy. But um, uh, that sort of PTSD um, factor is is always there in the background. But yeah, these days there's there's services available, and we're a lot more aware of it. And I think the service as a whole is driving towards looking after the officers a lot better than they used to. Up the back. Another one for Guy. Um, what is yours or the official police uh, uh, attitude to potential crime writers coming to get some background information about how to do it? <laughs> Not how to write, but, but about crimes or how it's done. I mean, I was there research. Is there an official approach or have you got an official approach about how, the, how you answer their questions? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear oh, that. So the question was, um, how do you feel about people coming to you for advice? Does, do you ever have um, aspiring authors come to you and say, now, if I was going to do this, would that work? Has anyone ever done that to you? Um, not so much authors. I, people are always approaching me for legal advice and I always put a caveat on it saying I'm not a solicitor. So <laughs> if they want to pay me $400 an hour, then um, I'm, I'll gladly take it, but uh, it's, it's tempered with the... Um, it's tempered with the, uh, the caveat that uh, uh, this is based on my experience and my understanding of the law, but the law is a very, very complex thing. So. Dorothy, what about you? Do people ask you about how you go um, about your business of writing? Uh, well, I just want to answer the question about an author approaching uh, the police. Uh, Queenscliff is a very tiny borough. It's probably the smallest in Australia. It's got a very tiny police station with one sergeant. And I, I rang him up and he was very polite on the phone and then I went knocking on his door with my list of questions and there was just this sort of tiny gleam in his eye, lady novelist come to call, but he was still very polite and friendly. Uh, but uh, not long after I'd been to visit him, just a matter of a few months really, I bumped into 
this man again. And he was running a vegan restaurant in Geelong. <laughs> so, so to cut a long story short, I, what I took away from that was if I put that in a novel, nobody would believe me. <laughs> so I can actually, that gives me licence. Not that I, not, not, I don't know how the other writers feel about this, but you don't want to make stupid mistakes. Mm. But you, you, within the realms of what's plausible, you want to be able to use your imagination. But I just think, though, as a journalist, you know, some of the things that I come across are so crazy, so mad, that you think if you did actually put that in a novel, people would go, oh, that's pathetic. Like, you know, the, the bumbling criminals. <laughs> um, you know, one of my favourites is, um, you know, I, the murder itself was tragic. This was the murder of Michael McGurk. But when it first happened, we thought that the, it was a professional hit. As it turned out, it was someone running an accountancy firm and a 19-year-old sidekick. They got to the crime scene. They were so nervous the 19-year-old was dispatched to the local bottle shop to buy a bottle of bourbon. So he doesn't have his ID, so he doesn't get served. So then the older guy goes to the bottle shop to buy. Then they sit in the car. They're both so agitated with nerves about what's to happen. After um, McGurk is, sh uh, is shot, they almost crashed the getaway car at the first roundabout They'd forgotten they didn't have an e-tag, so it was photographed going across the bridge. <laughs> and then I think they'd seen too many or read too many um, of works by our authors. So when they got home, they decided you have to burn your clothes. Well, they forgot, one of them forgot that the down payment for the murder was still in his back pocket. <laughs> and you think, to think that we thought that these were professional hitmen... <laughs> And they were, in fact, just bumbling, incompetent idiots. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry to... Uh... Anyway, more, more questions. Obviously, a lot of the writers are taking real examples, real-life events as their inspiration. And I was just wondering, sorry, another question for the cop, even though you've all been very engaging. Do you ever have the opposite scenario where you've experienced some kind of crime fiction and thought, oh, yes, that's how he did it? Um... I don't know. My, my wife often rolls her eyes when we're sitting in front of the TV because I always try to guess at the beginning who's, who's done it. <laughs> and whenever we get to the end and I'm right, I said, see, I told you. Um, uh, a, question, a question similar to that, though. When you've arrested somebody, does it ever occur to you, mate, if you'd done it this way, <laughs> if you'd hidden the evidence here, if you've disposed of the body like this, does that ever go through your mind as well? It does, but we don't tell them. <laughs> I think it's probably a bit late by then. <laughs> but when you, when you talk about bumbling criminals, yeah, I've, I've run across quite a few in, in the years. I've run quite a, across quite a few bumbling policemen too in that time. So, But I think on, on the whole, uh, we're ahead. <laughs> on, on that note, I think we'll um, bring our session to an end. If you enjoyed that session from the Scone Literary Festival 2018, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll be able to find all of the episodes from all of the festivals that we recorded in 2018. 
and the ones coming up for 2019. There will be many more episodes of the Scone Literary Festival yet to come over the next couple of weeks, so do keep your eye out in the feed and make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever you get your pods. You can find out more about the Scone Literary Festival at www.sconewritersfestival.com.au. Please like, share, you know, do all the communal things, tell people about us and give us a hoy if you have a festival coming up that you'd like us to record and be a part of. You can either send us a message through our Facebook page at Rights for Festivals or go onto the website and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Until the next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.